Welcome back to the HMA Interview Podcast. We are excited to have the famed host of the Wrestling Changed My Life Podcast and director of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame's Etched in Stone series on the Smith family. Join us for the 56th interview. Before we roll the episode, let me fill you in on the latest at HMA Wrestling. First and foremost, we have just published our first ever merchandise order, and it is live on our site at hmarrestling.com slash shop. That's hmarrestling.com slash shop. Purchasing our compound sportswear gear is the best way to support HMA to keep on producing content. All right, enough from me. Let's turn it over to Ryan Warner. All right, welcome back to Home Mad Advantage, ladies and gentlemen. I'm joined today by none other than the Ryan Warner of Wrestling Changed My Life. Ryan, uh, you just put out an incredible uh, wrestling audio documentary, um, one of many that you've been you've been putting out. Um, and uh, man, I'll tell you what, that was the best one I've heard. And um, obviously, video documentaries are really cool and very popular. But um, until until Gable the Goat, I had never heard of an audio documentary before. And um, when I listened to that, I was um, I was addicted to audio documentaries I started listening to a bunch of them and uh, I think your production of all the ones have been incredible Um, and so I'm excited to talk about the Smiths today Um, but first I just want to start with Gable the Goat which was your first audio documentary right yep so um, what was the what was the motivation for for doing that and because obviously I, I don't think it's been done in the wrestling world or at least in in modern time um, what was your motivation for doing that? Well, like you said, I love document film documentaries. You know, we'll just call them documentaries, but I love those as much as anyone, whether it's an ESPN 30 for 30, whether it's some political documentary, I'm a sucker for all types of documentaries. And I also love podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at the time I did, I still don't know very much about operating a camera or, or how all that worked, but I did know a little bit about podcasting. And so he said, I, you know, like you said, there's other audio documentaries out there. In fact, ESPN 30 for 30 has an audio documentary podcast. And so I listened to that and I go, that'd be super fun to do. And just took a stab at it with Gable the Goat. Now knowing what I do about screenwriting and storytelling, and I, I cringe a little bit listening to that one, but it was, it was awesome to get it out there just because Gable's amazing. And I, I got to interview him and um, got to interview brands as part of that. But that was the first one, I part one and part two. And then uh, we did a, a second one called Assembly Fall, which focuses on a very narrow topic, uh, just this big upset in the state of Illinois history. Uh, the state tournaments held at Assembly Hall. We called it Assembly Fall because Eric Tannenbaum got pinned in the final. So yeah. That was the second one. And then the third series was called The Smiths, as you mentioned, just came out last Monday. Um, so after that, that Gable the Goat production, um, I, I feel like that one really blew up. And, um, you know, you, you posted it just like a, a normal podcast on your, on your like podcast apps and stuff. Um, did, how, how big was the difference in the listens for that audio documentary and your normal interviews that you do on, uh, on a weekly basis? It was like 3x. So the the most downloaded episode we have at the time, well, right now it's Kyle Dake. Besides Gable the Goat, it's a Kyle Dake interview. That one has two to 3x more across all platforms still. Um, But it's also been out a lot longer. Um, But yeah, people just loved it. And 
I thought at first, I'm like, is it the name Gable? And it really wasn't because we also released Dan Gable as a standalone episode. <laughs> that one does well, but it doesn't do as well as that. So I think, uh, like you said, a lot of people don't even know what it is. And even to this day, people text me, they're like, how can I watch The Smiths? I'm like, it's an audio documentary. They're like, what's that? I'm like, haven't you ever heard of Serial the Podcast? Or you know, there's, there's so many of them now, but like you, I didn't know a lot about them. So, um, but that Gable the Goat one was definitely a big uptick for us and gave us some legit, and when I say us, it's just me. I don't know why I say us every time, but uh, gave, gave the show a lot of legitimacy and gave me the confidence to keep doing them just because people, people like them, you know? Yeah, I got you. Um, and I, and I know people like them. I've seen the the reviews and everything that people have on, as far as feedback goes, it's been incredible. Um, so let's, let's go forward to, I think it was, it was last spring, last summer when the National Wrestling Hall of Fame reached out to you about doing a documentary about the Smiths. Yep. If you could just walk me through that story of, of um, how that went down, what your thought process was of maybe I can do this. And I know this isn't your full-time job, so this is a lot of stuff that um, <laughs> is on the side that is going to add time to your, to your life. Um, so just walk me through that story. Sure. Yeah. So it was, you know, got the call in April from the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and USA Wrestling. A guy by the name of Pat Christensen kind of led the charge. He listened to Gable the Goat and said, would you want to produce one for this Etched in Stone series? Which at the time was kind of a concept more than an actual podcast. And, but now it's a podcast and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame produces it. Uh, they've done another series on Mark Chiarella. But the concept was, hey, there's all these great wrestlers in the Hall of Fame. We want you to do one on everyone. And I go, well, that's just too many. You know, they're like, well, who do you want to, whose who story do you want to tell? I go, John W. Smith, man, let's do it. Um, and he's like, well, let's see if we can get them. And so through a collaboration with Leroy Smith, Rich Bender, and some other folks, we essentially got John to agree to do two two-hour-long interviews, one in August, one in September. And this is all in the spring still, right? Mm -hmm. So he agrees to it. And then I line up the other 30 interviews and start really, really going deep in the research, like July 4th weekend. And, you know, started with the outline, started learning everything we can about the story and, you know, about some of the, the characters in it. And at first I was a little worried that there weren't enough conflicts. Like there wasn't enough bumpy roads, right? Yeah. I just thought he won six titles. That's all there is to it. And, and you know, without conflict, there is no story. Exactly. And so, <laughs> but then as I real, as I read Sam, I'm like, Oh my God, not only is there conflict, there's more than I can put in it. I mean, every single year, John went through something that was challenging or he was upset right. um, by someone. And so, you know, got the call in April, July, researched it, mapped out the story. Um, and then from August through October, I was interviewing people as much as I could. Most of them were in person. So drove to Des Moines to interview uh, Roy Salger, Randy Lewis, stopped at Gables along the way, flew down to Stillwater, Oklahoma, I think four different times. And yeah, yeah it was awesome, dude. So it would be like land in Oklahoma City, Tuesday night, hammer out an interview in Oklahoma City with someone, interview John 10 a.m. on Wednesday, and then I would, I would always take off. If I had an interview with John, I'd take that day off work. And so one of the times was like a Wednesday. Interview John at 10 a.m., 
Then I did two more interviews that day in Stillwater with like Mark Perry's dad or anyone who, you know, local reporters. And so, you know, the shooting and the recording of the interviews went from August, September, October. And then at that point, you take all the interviews, which it's like 30 hour plus interviews, sometimes more, transcribe them to a text document. And then you start to put copy and paste and put little snippets together. Man, how um, long did that take to transcribe 30 interviews? Well, the transcribe, luckily there's a software, so I don't have to do that. Oh, wow. That's yeah, nice. just paid for it. So that was easy. Um, if you had to do that, it would take at least another month. Yeah. Yeah, that I use a service insane. called Descript, and they just, you upload the MP3 and it spits it out. Were they, were they really accurate with everything? You have to go through and listen, listen to it, but because I'm not like sharing that with the world, I knew enough. Like even if it was misspelling here, I yeah. knew what the intent was, so it was right. fine. I mean, if I was going to publish it on my website, it would take a long time to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, but so once I had everything transcribed, I started writing the script. The big challenge for me was I've never done something that many episodes, seven episodes. Right. I mean, it took me a half year to do two episodes for Gable. And so I was thinking, how am I going to do seven episodes in three months? But, you know, by, by Thanksgiving, the rough draft of all seven episodes was done. December, I went through and revised each one two more times. And by the like January one, we had the script and it was really polished, really refined. And by script, I mean, I'm writing out what the narrator's going to say, which is me. Right. I know which clip from John I'm going to use. I know which piece of music I'm going to use. I know which piece of archival material I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was all done across seven episodes. It was like 210 pages. Um, and so once that, once that was done, then I started recording it. And that's where you get in an editing software and on the right side, you have all of the little voice clips you have from John, from Gable. And then I record my narration. I fill in where John's talking or Gable's talking. I fill in my narration and keep going. And to do one episode takes about four to five days. And so, you know, we had to do seven episodes all in January. I mean, at the beginning of January, there was nothing to listen to at all. And so we put together all of those uh, in January. I would get the rough draft done for episode one, for example. I would send it off to a buddy of mine, Raleigh Peterkin, who would listen to it. He would provide feedback. I'd incorporate the feedback. I did that same thing with my mom, my brother, my girlfriend, just trying to get other eyes and ears on it. And then, you know, finally, I would incorporate the feedback and I would ship off episode one to the Hall of Fame. And then John and Leroy had to approve it. And so it's just like, stressful the whole time waiting for them to provide feedback or and luckily they didn't you know they were awesome they just said everything sounds great and it was like january 10th and i hadn't even started episode two but once we got episode one going episode two going then they started to roll by the end of the month i did episode seven in less than 24 hours and it took me five days for episode one that's incredible it was a lot of work man it was fun though so in, if you had to pick a time when you were doing the most work per day and you had like your work schedule, what did a day in the life look like for you? Because I, I don't know how you would find that kind of time to incorporate all, all the stuff that you had to fill in those days. January was by far the busiest. I worked every single day, 
Um, so a typical day, well, at the end of January, I took off like three days from work, vacation time. So I could just get, get shit done. Um, but normally I would wake up at four, four, four thirty, and work on the Smiths until 9am. And then I would go to my work email from like nine to one, nine to two. I was really just doing the bare minimum to skate by. And then from, from like two to six, I would work on the Smiths more. And at six o'clock, I would ship off whatever I had to my buddy Raleigh or whoever to listen to. Throughout the night, they'd send the feedback in. And then the next morning at four, I'd get up, look at the feedback, print it off, re-record and incorporate it. So it was pretty much that Monday through Friday, you know, while I'm still working my sales job, I'm still doing wrestling change my life. And then I also started to produce podcasts for businesses on the side. So I had all this going on, but it's weird. You know, Jocko Wilnick says this discipline equals freedom. And right. it's well over said, but when you're getting up at four every day and you're focused, it's amazing how much you can get done. It's true. Um, and then the weekends, it was like amazing because I would wake up at four still on Saturday and Sunday, probably about four thirty on the weekends and work until one. And I still had a half day hanging out with my girlfriend and it was good. And then I just go back to that routine. But I did that every, there wasn't a single day in January where I wasn't up at least by four thirty working on this thing. That's incredible. It was, uh, it was a lot, but again, it was just, you, you knew you were working on something that was, had the potential to be special. And so it was motivating. And once there was like a call I had with the hall of fame and USA wrestling in early January and we're trying to pick a date on when all this is going to come out. And I go, let's go live midnight, February 1. They're like, let's do it. Once we had that date, it was just like, it was a calm, but also motivation that I knew I was going to get it done. Because mm-hmm. There's just no way I wasn't. Um, and it just, once you had the date, you just kind of, that was it. You know, it's February 1. You got to get, got to get it done. Did you ever um, think about, because I know a lot of other series similar to this do like a weekly release of one episode after another until you're all done did you guys ever consider that and just decide throw them all out there at i'm i'm anti that i hate that model because it, it worked in the tv days when we didn't have instant access right right but with the internet you listen to one episode on a monday the amount of stuff you see over a seven day period you're not going to remember the last episode it's true. and the momentum you have is gone i mean when i'm binge watching something on netflix I'm only doing that because I can keep going and going and going and I'm just in it and I'm going, you know? And so I was adamant that anything I'm going to do in this space, I'm never going to do that. I'm just going to release all of them at once, let people binge them. Like, why do I care if I listen to them all at once or if they listen to them over a seven week period? You know, I think people just get fatigued from here's episode one, then you got to wait. And here's episode two, like seven weeks is like, that's two months. No one's going to give me that kind of time. So I was adamant about all seven at once. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's exactly what I did. I binge watched them all throughout the day. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, something that I was like, when I listened to this, something that I was really curious about and that I have no experience in, where did you get all the footage of archived audio, archived matches, stuff like that? Because, it, I mean, it's not on Flow Wrestling, you know? Right. Yeah, a lot of it's from a local radio station in Stillwater. I don't even know like the, the call signal, but I think it's just like Stillwater Radio. Um, one of the guys who works there, Rex Holt, is still, he was the voice of Cowboy Wrestling. 
in the 70s and 80s and still does it. But I went to interview him at the Stillwater radio station and he had a box of old tapes. And I'm just like, my eyes are just glued on that. I'm like, I got to get those tapes. He's like, you want these? I'm like, heck yeah. So I brought him up to Chicago. I took him to a place that transcribes them and I gave them a bunch of tapes and they gave me back MP3 files. Um, so that was one source. Another was I was interviewing John's sister, Rita and Chuck White, Rita White's sister. And they had a bunch of home videos and I took those and had them converted to MP3 files. So a lot of it was just given to me throughout the process. And I was just super lucky that people are so willing to share the, their home videos, uh, that kind of thing. Well, that's incredible. That, I mean, the, the audio of like older archived audios and then modern ones of other people talking about it, like your 30 interviews and the balance of those made it so, so good. Um, so I kind of want to, talk a little bit about like the specifics of the show so when I listened to it um, a couple of things that that one thing surprised me was that you know for me especially my whole life in watching wrestling has been like from 2016 to now Mm -hmm. and if you think about people that can tell that story of John Smith in the 1990s and even earlier that's that's a whole nother world for me like I know John Smith I can list off his stats I can tell you he's a two-time national champ, a six-time world champion, and I can tell you about his brothers, and I can tell you, like, the overall story. But, you know, after that, I realized how little I knew about everything that went into it. And um, for something like that to be able to retell history and and bring it to people, to kids like me, who, you know, someday I want to be on that stage that John Smith is on. I want to be that guy who people talk about 30 years from then. Um, and so to be able to see somebody like that so clearly in a story so well put together was really awesome. Um, Thank you. Was that, was that at all part of your motivation for this to, to retell that story that hasn't really been told in full like that? Yeah, it, it really was. And I felt like, you know, this when I got this assignment, The Last Dance had just gone live. And mm-hmm. in my mind, I'm thinking, dude, John Smith is the Michael Jordan of wrestling. You have a, you have a golden opportunity. Don't mess it up for one. Two, think about, like you said, you know, when I was your age, there was no flow. And the only thing you got about anyone was through like Win Magazine. And so I'm like, think of all those kids that may not have any direction, may not have a good coach at all. Maybe they're just in some, you know, country town. They don't have you know, any type of motivation, they're going to listen to this maybe, and they're going to understand what it takes to get there. And so that was a big part of my motivation. I would think about like just all the people who would be listening to it and just thinking, you know, a lot of people don't know just how hard it is or how, how close he was to maybe not making it. And I really wanted to bring the history to life accurately, but also humanize John and show people that a lot of times along the way, he had self-doubts. We all have self-doubts. You know, he lost matches. We've all lost matches. So I wanted to bring the history to life, tell it accurately, but also humanize John and his brothers so it wasn't just like this mystical thing that happened. Yeah. Um, so when you did the research, you said you really kind of delved into that on the 4th of July or that, that area. Um, after you felt like you really had a lot of research under your belt, and you, you kind of got the story. Going into the interviews that you did, 
what was your like the part that you were most excited to hear John talk about and the most excited to hear everybody that you interviewed talk about? I had heard when I interviewed Randy Lewis early August, he told me a story about playing blackjack with John Smith in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I had never heard that story before. And this is in 1988. So 1988, John's on top of the world. He won the Worlds in 87. He's destroying NCAA wrestling. And Lewis is kind of out of it at this point. He's out of it. He's like 165 for 136-pound weight class. He's like, yeah. he retired. You know, he hasn't wrestled for like three years. And it was actually at the, the Cliff King Vegas tournament. Mm-hmm. And... The only year Iowa went to it was that year. So Randy was there as an assistant. He bumps into John. And like in Randy's mind, he knew he was coming back, but no one else knew. And so he's sitting at this blackjack table with John Smith. And they're talking crap a little bit. And, you know, little does John know that Randy actually is coming back. And not only is Randy coming back, he's coming he's back at John's weight play. class. Yeah. And it's the same guy who knocked off his brother in 84. And so, not just knocked him off, but in that crazy controversial. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's something you'll never read about. You'll never find in the newspapers. So that's why I tried to do as many interviews before I got to John. So this was, like I said, early August. Randy's telling me this story. We're at a hotel in Des Moines. As he's telling it to me, I'm listening to him. But in my head, I'm like, I can't wait to play this clip for John Smith and see what he has to say about it. Um, That was one where I just couldn't wait to bring my iPad out and go, John, this is what Randy said. What do you think, man? Um, that was one. The other one that came up, this was later in the process, because I ended up interviewing John three separate times, two hours each. Wow. So, yeah, the third one was in October, and I had pretty much everything buttoned up, but I had a couple holes I had to plug. The other story that, I, that came out that I couldn't wait to ask John about was the incident where in episode six, he gets beat by John Fisher at the Olympic trials and he's sitting mm-hmm. on the side of the road and his family yeah. drives by and they pick him up and take him to Wendy's and he's just like totally out of it. I mean, that was one I could not wait to ask him about. That one was fascinating. You know, uh, something I meant to bring up too, that that just reminded me of was um, something that really I thought was, was so cool was how invested his whole family in, was to wrestling. Yeah. Um, and how close they were too. I mean, when he when he wanted help, he called his brother in law. How often do you see that in any families in America? You know, right. some some are very close, but man, that I thought was really really cool. That he, when he was like, in a really low place, he called his his brother in law, and um, and they I was drove just, across the country at the drop of a hat from Oklahoma. Yeah, from Oklahoma City to Pittsburgh on like a day's notice and pulled up to the trials. It's amazing. It's incredible to support their brother. And there's, there's 10 siblings. He said, yeah, 10 kids. That's a, that's a lot of loyalty to have for 10 or for nine people. Plus, plus the, uh, the spouses, um, like they, like they had for the loyalty for each other. That, that blew my mind and something I respected a lot. Um, I have for my future family, you know, yeah, no question, man. And my brother and I were talking about this. He went with me on the third trip to Oklahoma. And um, Chuck White, the guy who said that, we went to his house the night before, then went to John's the next day. And we we walk out of there and you're like, God, they're, they're just the model of what you want your family to be. Right. You know, everyone, you know, loves each other. Everyone's close. 
but they're not so close where they can't, you know, give each other a hard time, talk a little crap. You know, everyone's, it's just a bond that you're like, God, I want my family to be like that. And luckily mine is pretty close, but even that, no one's as close as the Smiths. And I, I'll tell you, you can't leave Mark Perry's house, any of the siblings, you can't leave any of their houses without them trying to get you to stay over. Um, like I canceled several hotel rooms because they're like, no, you're not staying in a hotel, you're staying here. Um, they're just, and not John himself, but his sisters yeah. and his brothers, they're just so kind. Um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, just a close family, man. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, that was, um, that was one of the coolest things that I took from the, from the episode was that how close they were. Sam's getting and, blown up here, dog. Yeah, Spammer's calling you. Yeah, there's something, there's something going on. That's all good though. Um, you got to take it? No, no, it's fine. Okay, cool. Um, but so I, I know I've told this story before, but, uh, I am the sixth of seven children. And so to hear his stories that I can relate to of, um, you know, I remember some mornings when I was little, like I'd wake up at 8am and breakfast would be gone. The next morning I woke up at six, I was eating breakfast, <laughs> you know? Um, and it was, it was really cool to hear that that's kind of what, what made those siblings and that, and that family was, um, was them being so tight, but they had to, they had to fight with each other for things. And, um, you know, that the competitiveness to your point was strong. Yeah, it was, it was very strong. And I thought that was really cool. And the way you, you told that in the story was awesome. Thank you, man. And I, I would be remiss without saying, uh, I know you're a religious man. The Smith family is super, super religious. And that's right. a big part of it. That, that was, um, that was very evident for sure. Um, and man, I, John Smith is like one of the biggest mysteries to me in wrestling because he has he has that story and so much wisdom, and yet you know sometimes he just gets put as the Oklahoma State head coach, you know. Right. But there's so much more there, and I love to hear that story. Um, so, so Pat Smith, and and you mentioned this in the in the documentary, he's coaching at a club in Arkansas. I think it's called the Mighty Bluebirds. Okay. Um, when I started, because I, I grew up in Memphis, wrestled, I mean, I wrestled his guys all the time. We're about three hours away from each other. So I've battled against those guys for a long time. Um, and as I started to learn more about who Pat Smith was, um, a leg, an absolute legend in the sport, so good. Um, I was so surprised as I started to learn more that he settled down in Little Rock, Arkansas with a little youth club called the Mighty Bluebirds, you know. <laughs> Did you get any more of that story, you know, after his career of how he got there? Because that whole family kind of built their, their life around Oklahoma State. And yeah. for him to, to separate from that was interesting. Did you get any of that from the story? We, we stopped the story at 94 in the documentary just because it had to end somewhere. But right. to your point, after Pat won, uh, you know, won his fourth, he wrestled at the Olympic trials in 96, took second to Kenny Monday. Then he coached with John until 06. Uh, you know, they won 06. Yep. So he was the head head assistant at Oklahoma state until 06. It was John was the head coach. Pat was the assistant and Mark branch was the other assistant. And then Mark Perry was in there at some point too. That's a lineup right there. Right. (laughs) And you think about that, right? All those guys have been to the finals just multiple, multiple times. And in 06, after Oklahoma state had won four in a row, he ended up, leaving his post at Oklahoma State, and he was drawn to Arkansas by this guy, Greg Hatcher. 
Greg mm-hmm. Hatcher is like this big time business guy, does very well for himself. And he moved to Arkansas from what I hear. I've never met the guy. And he just couldn't believe that there wasn't high school wrestling there. Yeah. And so he went to, he went to every high school in Arkansas. I don't think he actually visited them, but in some way he got in contact with all of them and said, listen. Every single one. Yeah, he's like, if, I'll buy you a wrestling mat if you want it. And so he bought God knows how many wrestling mats. I'm, I'm like 50, 60, 70, maybe hundreds of wrestling mats. Any high school that wanted one, he would buy them one. And he started wrestling in Arkansas, call it that 07 time frame. There wasn't even a state tournament. Um, then he brings Pat in and Pat sets up this academy right outside Little Rock, Arkansas. And slowly but surely they start building it up. And then they had their first Fargo qualifier. Then they had their first Fargo American. Then they had their first college that wrestled in Arkansas. Today, there's more colleges with division one wrestling in Arkansas than there is in the state of Illinois. Um, excuse me, not division one. There's more colleges with wrestling in Arkansas. Wrestling, yeah. I mean, they have, um, so for, for example, Kevin Ward got his start at a Division two school there, mm-hmm. yep. and he took them that. fourth in the country. And then Little Rock, Arkansas, that university got a Division one status. So now they have Division one wrestling in Arkansas from 15 years ago nothing. from nothing, absolutely nothing. And that was just, uh, that was just 15, 15 years yeah. ago? The, I released a bonus episode today with Mark Branch. The last 15 minutes of that, Mark Branch talks about this whole situation because in 06, Branch had gone to coach at Wyoming, mm-hmm. and he wanted to hire Pat as his assistant. And Pat's like, no, I'm going to go to Arkansas and start this club. And he's like, bro, there's no wrestling in Arkansas. He's like, what are you talking about? And Pat's like, no, I think we're going to give it a shot. You know, I'm working with this guy, Greg Hatcher. He has the financial means. You know, I have the wrestling means. And those two together, Pat Smith, Greg Hatcher, and I'm sure there's countless others, but essentially created wrestling in a state where there's no wrestling. And now it's, you know, they have, like I said, multiple colleges with wrestling. It's really awesome to see. I, I doubt it. I seriously doubt it, but I can't help but ask. Do you know if, uh, if this Greg Hatcher is related to the Iowa wrestler Mike Hatcher? I do not know that. Not sure. Might have to look into that. Um, that would be interesting to, to see. Um, but um, so that's, that's a lot of different stories that you were able to tell in that whole thing. Um, what do you think, looking back, was the most important piece of that whole story? Um, what, what year do you think made or break the thing? Um, adversity, you know, no no question in me. Episode one, 1984 was the make or break because you had to tell two stories in episode one. You had to tell John being born up through his freshman year in college, where he has a great regular season and goes one and two at the nationals Mm -hmm. or, or one and one, because back then there was no true wrestlebacks. Right. Right. So John's true freshman year, he's like 33 and three, does not place. He's the third seed. So that's a big, that's a big moment. Right. That's in the, that's in March of 84. But then what happened that summer through the arbitration debacle, as you alluded to with Dan Gable being the Olympic coach, but he goes into court and sides with Randy Lewis, even though Leroy's the Olympian, that's the make or break moment for the whole story, because that's what created the Iowa Oklahoma state rivalry. That's what created the rivalry between John and Randy, which plays out in 88, as we saw. And it also is just like the Gable-John Smith rivalry is real, and it's still real to this day. I mean, it's yeah, – yeah. 
it's tense still. I mean, John wouldn't even talk about it. That's how tense it is. So I figured if I could nail episode one and tie in really several stories, John's freshman year, introducing Leroy and showing his Olympic run, and then also showing Gable's involvement. What, once we got to that point, after episode one, I was like, all right, we should be pretty good from here on out. I think that's – I always feel like that's the hardest thing to stuff like that. It's just getting the first part of the story done because you don't really know how much to put into it. You don't know everything you want. But um, I think the way it came out worked out really well. It was a smooth transition. And, I mean, I've never really been – because there aren't many episode things like that in wrestling. Never really been hooked on something in wrestling like content-wise. I was hooked. I started, <laughs> I started in the beginning of the day. And uh, every episode, I was just like, all right, next one, next one. I'm ready to run through these. They were, they were fantastic. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that, that you got to do that. Um, but looking forward, who's the, ne- who's the next one? Who do you want to do next? Uh, I mean, the, the big one is Kale. And let's just say we don't even talk about Kale's coaching career because I know he's a very private guy with his coaching. Right. Let's just yeah. say we ended in 2004. That's the end is he wins the gold medal in Athens, the show ends. There's still such a great story there. I think there's four episodes before that. You know, it's like, get us from, episode one is Kale being born through, yeah. he gets to Iowa State. Mm-hmm. Episodes two and three, you can div- divide his four titles across those two. Right. And then episode four. Is his transition. Know, is his freestyle career. Yeah. And that's, he had a tough go at it, you know, for a while. He got beat by Yoel Romero several times. Mm-hmm. Um, he never won a world title. You know, he got beat by Lee Fullhart in the trials that year. I mean, the 04 Olympic trials, he went to match three to even make the team. Um, yeah. Didn't even win the U.S. Open that year. So he, that's to me where, again, you look for conflict in a story. When you go 159 or no, there's not much conflict. And he really didn't have that many close match. I mean, even Cormier, he beat Cormier pretty handedly. He did. So you got to finesse your way through that and still make it interesting. But, you know, that his international career is really – I don't think people know a lot about that. And that would be, to me, the golden goose. Um, would love to do that. Would love to tell the Tom Brand story. You know, that I know Ter- we got Terry, and right. that was awesome. To me, Terry is one of the best things I've ever seen. I agree. Um, no, I said I've never been hooked on a on a wrestling thing. If that were like a five part series, I'd be hooked on that for sure. That would have done it. Yeah, that's that, that to me is the best thing Flo's ever done is Terry. Um, I agree. And you know, like you said, I'm glad they just they just dropped it. Hey, we're not gonna. When they did the Penn State thing, they made you wait each week, and it's like by the third week, I'm I'm kind of over it. You know, like mm-hmm. Terry, they just gave it to you, boom, and you, and I watched it three or four times. Yeah. Um, but I still think the Tom Brand story is untold. What do you think? I it mean, it's kind of told through I, that. I can't tell you. I can tell you he's an Olympic champion. I can tell you a little bit about his college career. Um, and I can tell you a little bit about his upbringing with Terry because I've heard about that through some of your interviews, through some of the flow. But, man, I, I really – and it's, it's also – I think it shows a little bit of where my knowledge is because I can tell you pretty much everything about Kyle Snyder from birth – in Maryland to where he is now. But, you know, Tom Brands, I can tell you very little. Right. So um, it's, it's very untold. And um, even, even told things, like the story of Dan Gable, is very documented. It's a lot of different places. Um, 
I still kids these days everything that is told becomes untold to some generation. Sure. Um, and so it's always good to keep coming back to these older stories to tell them. And I was telling you before we started recording, um, as as an up and coming wrestler, somebody has goals of becoming somebody like John Smith one day. I was I was taking notes. I was journaling stuff from that, and taking it to my coach at practice and talking about some of the things that um, that John talked about. And I have been this last week over just listening to this. I've been obsessed with low singles. Mm. Like when I visualize my wrestling, never before. Like these last few months, I do all kinds of visualization. I, I shoot a lot of high crotches and I do a lot of fake snap go binds. For some reason, this last week has been all low singles isn't that crazy i love it dude i just listened to that and um now my mind is overtaken by low singles i'm getting really good at that because when you told that story in my mind i was thinking i mean he came up with something brand new that is so like normal nowadays that we use because it's that good and nobody had ever seen it before right um that's you know you brought up a good point there i mean Part of the, when, you know, when you do a piece of content, there's, it, re- it serves two purposes. It's either going to entertain someone or it's going to educate them. Right. Most of my stuff is more, I think, entertainment-based, more so than educational. But you know, for the people like you who are still wrestling, that's a, there's an educational piece to that, right? I mean, there's a, and yeah. you mentioned it. And the one thing we didn't get to hit on in the documentary, just because I didn't want to go too deep with technical stuff, mm-hmm. but really the low single, that opened up John's um elbow pass to a high crotch right that's that's another big thing too because my number one attack is a high crotch and i've been thinking a lot more about a lower attack on that because i think we've drifted away from it too if you shoot a low leg attack your head's going to come to the inside every time Mm -hmm. like that's kind of the the mindset that we have but what john was so good at was hitting a um a really low high crotch and i think that's like you think about a knee pull starting to get lower uh, a single leg is getting lower and lower. Um, stuff like that, outside step, even like an outside step shots are starting to get lower and lower. Um, and I think it just, things are going are, are gonna to move. And in wrestling, it's so specific. Things in wrestling are so specific. Like literally we're talking about the evolution of wrestling being a different place on somebody's leg. Mm-hmm. Like if you looked at the number one attacks and like were able to take a really detailed graph of it on like a mannequin's leg, it would go up and down and up the leg and back down. Yep. It's really, and one of the biggest reasons I love wrestling is how we evolve. Like if you look at football, you can talk about the evolution of uh, routes that you run, the kind of coverage that you have, how you throw the ball, how you run the ball, how you are on defense, how you block. There's so many levels for different positions and stuff, but wrestling is so specific. Like we're literally talking about 10 years, you move up three inches up the leg, you know? Right. You think about it think about it like this. I mean, it's almost like he had his own play action pass. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, yeah. no one knew the low single was coming, so people weren't afraid to let him stay on the outside. So he would stay on the outside, faking and moving, he'd hit low singles. Then once people realized they had to tie him up, they're trying to get their hands on him. And so if someone collar tied his right side, he'd slide by. If someone collar tied his left side, he hit that elbow pass elbow to a high pass, crotch. Yeah. So it's like whatever someone did, he was perfect there. And then starting in like 90 through 92, he was nasty on top. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he had three takedowns that he just perfected. And if you don't want to tie up, no problem, low single. If you want to tie up, 
don't hang on his head because he's going to elbow pass you or slide exactly. by you. Yeah. And it's like three attacks. That's it. It was amazing to watch and, and hear about. So how much, how much wrestling footage did you get to watch of John Smith? I mean, I watched every match that was on YouTube. Um, and a lot of it's not even watching the match. It's, is there an announcer, right. you know, with archival, um, like saying what's happening. Um, but also, you know, with Randy Lewis, you do have to watch the matches because you want to ask them about certain situations. So, mm -hmm. you know, every episode has that climax match. You know, episode two, it's the Goodwill Games. I, I watched that one a couple of times. It's Goodwill Games finals. Yeah. You know, episode three was uh, the 88 Olympics. So, of course, I watched every match in the Olympics. Um, and so you, you, you watch what's out there, and that's more the beginning of that research process. Mm -hmm. But then in the end, you rewatch them again so you can accurately depict what's going on in the match. So did you get any footage that's not like on YouTube, anything that's out of any of his matches? Lots. Uh, matches, not matches, um, but what we got that's not on YouTube is all of those radio it's hard to tell when something's like a match broadcast versus a radio broadcast, but um, a lot of it's a radio broadcast that's not on YouTube. Um, okay. So, for example, the 94 Nationals, there's a little bit on YouTube, but most of it is not. Um, John's freshman year when Iowa wrestled Oklahoma State, that's all radio broadcast. And the best stuff we found, though, was the John Smith bronze ceremony uh, induction. Mm -hmm. um, so when John Smith got the, you know, his high school created a bronze statute for yeah. him, they unveiled it. That whole video I have, it's like 20 minutes. Um, I posted a clip of my Instagram. And then there's another awesome video where in 1988, after his first Olympic gold medal, John comes home from the airport and you can see him coming down the gate at the airport. And there's just like hundreds of people there swarming him. Um, I have that. It's not me. I have it. Just the family let me use it. But I'm sure they'd be okay posting it. But um, there's some pretty cool home videos like that where you see him, yeah, you know, not in a singlet, and it's pretty pretty awesome. Those are always really cool. Um, and now another thing, and and man, the more I talk with this to you, I I just get so many more questions. Um, did you, you went to the house he grew up in? Yep. You, you had to visit that. What was that like? What was the atmosphere? What was the house like? Because they talked about it, a lot of the battles they had there. How, how, do you, how would you describe that house? Well, his mom still lives there. Um, and it's a two-story house. They've since added on to it. But you walk in and there's the kitchen. And on the wall of the kitchen, there's literally like 12 Fargo plaques. Just Goodness. octagon, 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 octagon. And then there's on another wall, there's all the U.S. Open plaques. And those are like the shape of the United States. Right. Just so there's two walls just covered by the most prestigious plaques there is because even John's youngest brother, Mark Smith, won Fargo twice. He, you know, won four state or three state titles. And you think about all the U.S. Opens, all of the Fargo plaques, that's all there. But then at the same time, there's a big picture of Jesus in the living room, right? There's a big mm -hmm. picture of JT Real Muto, Real Muto yeah. um, a bat that he had signed. So you got to think that for Madeline, who's John's mom, she has like a hundred grandkids. So every grandkid's special to her. So you got all kinds of pictures up there. It's really like a museum of the Smith family, but the kitchen is certainly dominated by wrestling plaques. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there's, there's a lot of religious memorabilia. There's 
stuff from all the grandkids in there. Um, and John's mom is, you can learn a lot about John you know, from his dad. I'm sure he, he passed away, unfortunately, you know, a few years back. Yeah. But his mom, when I interviewed her in September, let's say she's 85. She's eight, somewhere in that range. She was still working as a nurse. Um, same wow. job she's had for over 50 some years. And she just retired in November. Oh but she was still delivering babies as like, again, the call at 85. She had the same job from <laughs> when she got out of nursing school to up until I was there in October and she's still delivering babies. Um, and so that's just the work ethic there is in that family. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Um, so there, there are five boys and five girls in, that, in the Smith family? Uh, four and six. Four, four brothers. Six. Yeah, Leroy, John, Pat, and Mark. And Mark, okay. What did what did Mark do? He you said he was a state champion. Uh, yep. three, Mark three Mark times? was a three time three time state champ, two time Fargo champ. When he left Oklahoma as a senior in ninety four, there's multiple articles that I found that called him the best Oklahoma wrestler of all time. He only mm-hmm. lost two matches and they were his freshman year at the sectional final and the state final to the same guy. So do you think he he, he peaked very early? He peaked early, but he also had – so he, w- he went to Oklahoma State. He was a three-time All-American. His senior year, he was undefeated, number one seed, and got upset. Mm. Um, he went through some personal issues when he was there. But I think it's like, God, I mean, if, if a three-time All-American is not good, like what is, you know? So yeah. it's like he had an inc- – you know, we'd be lucky to be three-time D1 All-Americans. Um, and he just – you know, again, he was undefeated his whole year. His senior year got upset. The year before that, he was wrestling up a weight um, and just didn't get it done. But, I mean, he he was right there. Um, he, unlike a lot of the other brothers, he will, he'll tell you this, he enjoyed coon hunting. He enjoyed doing some outdoor things. Um, yeah. I don't know if wrestling was his life like it was John's or Pat's, but, I mean, he was, he was as good to, as they come. It'd be hard. It'd be really hard to keep up with those guys. Like, Leroy, yeah. John, and Pat are, are fanatics – and they're such rare mentalities um, that you you shouldn't really get that many in you know in a in a region in a state like that many really dedicated people, let alone a family, you know. Yeah. So um, it it would be really hard for to mark for Mark, and he was the youngest, right? So he had he had he was the youngest to live up to. He yeah, when he was in middle school, he was an only child. He said. Like everyone, every, all the other nine siblings were out of the house when he was in middle school. Um, so he had really a quite different experience than the rest of the siblings where you're talking about sharing socks or you're fighting over breakfast. Mark didn't have that. Yeah. Um, but the interesting story that we did not get to tell was when Mark was a senior, a senior in high school, he was between Arizona State and Oklahoma State. Because Leroy was the head coach at ASU. John was the head coach at OSU. And so there was a recruiting showdown. He ended up going to Oklahoma State. But think about this. Like, his head coach was his brother, John. His assistant coach was his brother, Pat. And the second assistant coach was Mark Perry, who was his brother-in-law. So that was his three coaches in college. (laughs) Which, that's that's pretty tough, man, you know? Yeah, that's not easy. That's not an easy thing to have. So that's, I mean, and he honestly couldn't be a nicer guy. He met me, he lives outside of Tulsa, I believe it was. And one of the trips, I flew into Tulsa, got a hotel, 
had a couple guys come through the hotel room and do interviews. He was one of the last guys that came through. Just an awesome guy. We had a great time. Um, skipped his kid's first football game to come to the interview. So could not say enough great things about him. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that whole family seems like just incredible down-to-earth people. Um, Super down-to-earth. Well, yeah. hey, I'm, ex- I'm excited for you. It, it looks like that episode did really, 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 really well, um, or that series. Um, and I, it sounded like you had something planned out there with the, the Sanderson things you got it nailed oh, down. That's, that's no plans. That's in that's, my head. That's, that's in just, your head. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Speed. You got it planned out in your head. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you yeah. mean. Um, yeah. But I, what, what I mean is you've been thinking about it. Um, been th- oh, I've been thinking about it. Yeah. So that's exciting to hear, and I, and I hope that works out well for you. I appreciate it, man. The, the other thing I'll say is if you know, whoever's listening, if you have any ideas for stories that need to be told, let me know. They don't have to be on megastars. It could be on – one of, the, one of the stories I want to tell is David Taylor versus um, Lance Palmer, one of the biggest high school matches of all time, uh, St. Ed's and St. Paris Graham when that went down. Uh, there was also an Ironman final between David Taylor and Logan Stever. I'd love to tell that story. I mean, there's just some incredible matches that, you know, it doesn't always have to be about one person. It could be about a team. It could be about a legendary matchup, yeah. you know, so there's a lot, a lot out there. Well, that's that's really exciting, and I'm 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 happy that you're able to do that, um, especially right now. Like I would normally feel like I'm kind of a part of this, but I've produced very little content lately, so um, it's it's cool to sit you're back. One of my walk. inspirations, man. So I'm glad that glad to see you. You know, focusing on your skills for a little bit. But now I remember when I first started, I was like, man, that kid's on his game right now. Hiring writers, hiring people. So it was cool to watch you guys grow it, and that brain's still out there, man. I'm excited yeah. to. Excited to follow you this summer. I appreciate it. I'm I'm really excited to to keep moving forward and, and whatever's in my future. So um, we'll definitely stay in touch and, and hopefully we'll do a couple more of these. Next time you release one, uh, we'll have to get you back on. I want to do one in person, man. I like to come up to Young Guns, do a film a practice, do like a behind the scenes type thing. That'd be that would be really fun. That would that would be incredible. And I'm I'm telling you, we're we're building something really really special up here. Um, the group of kids you that I'm around. Off. Get me in there, man. That. I'd love to do it. You're you're invited anytime. It's you can come to our 5 a.m. workouts. It sounds like you're used to that. Five. <laughs> I got 5 a.m. workout tomorrow morning. Uh, then we go right to school. Have a couple workouts at night. Uh, get get up ready to do the same thing again. We're at like three or four workouts a day. So. So do you train at busy. Young Guns, or or um, in that basement, the compound? What's that? So Is it the compound. So yeah. So. Um, there's there's a bunch of different things here. So Young Guns is the Strip Matters, the Strip Matter Brothers, yep. um, and they run Young Guns. But a part of that is is the Bassett family, and they uh, it's it's Bill Bassett is the dad, and his two sons are Bo and Keegan, and they're they're crushing the the middle school youth scene right now. Um, but what they have with with the Bassetts is um, underneath Young Guns, so there's a big club that's like a giant club goes all across Pennsylvania. And then there's a little bit in Iowa and in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then smaller than that is called Ranger pride wrestling club. And that's what coach Bassett does like right underneath young guns. Um, and that is just a small group of kids. We pretty much all are, are going to the same school in high school from like 15 minutes away from each other at most. Um, what high school. It's called Bishop McCourt. And um, it's it's right in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It's had one state champion in the history 
of its entire not for long. Theme. <laughs> not for long. Yeah, we're coming to change that. Um, so that like that whole group of kids, and we're we're going to to make history with that school. If you remember when um, Jason Nolf, Michael Kemmerer, Max Murin, all those guys were at um, Franklin, Franklin Regional, Regional High School. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what we're going to do, but we're planning to take it up a couple notches. So. Um, so do you still go to the Young Guns practices or not as much yeah. anymore? So Young Guns is in Johnstown two times a week, Mondays and Wednesdays. Um, so tonight, what the com- what the compound is, you were asking about that too. So the compound is is uh, Bill Bassett's uh, company. It's a youth strength functional thing that he runs in Johnstown that has a bunch of kids from all over the city, not just wrestlers, come in and just get stronger. It's like a CrossFit for kids almost. Um, but it's got mats in there and, and a great room to wrestle. So when when COVID shut down everything, Young Guns moved their practice from UPJ, which is Pittsburgh Johnstown, mm-hmm. um, to the compound. And so now all of our practices are at the compound, but that's not like our team. That's just like the gym that we're at. Um, Rest in yeah. peace, Carlton Hasselberg, Hasselrig, Pitt Johnstown. Yeah. He was, he's a legend. I wish, I, wish I, got to, I, got, I wish I got to know him before he passed. That's a story I might tell, the Hasselberg rule. That's an incredible one. That would be a great I mean, one. The fact that those guys used to be able to wrestle D2 and they'd win sometimes, crazy. Great idea. So I think it would be really So that's, that's, who, that's where you're training. Are you still doing – so are they still doing, like, the Tulsa's of the world? Is that still going on, those tournaments? Tulsa's still a big thing. Uh, this group is, is not um, – it's not really a Tulsa. Uh, we don't really okay. travel to Tulsa. We, we might next year. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, but, I mean, Tulsa's just really, really far from, from this area. But, I mean, growing up, I lived in Memphis. It was a six-hour drive. Um, we went there every year. So I've, I'm very familiar with Tulsa. It's still a really, really big tournament. That used to be the one to win back in the day. Um, the, that's, a, that's a really big tournament. It's still big though? Okay, that's it's good, man. Big, yeah. Well, dude, I'm excited to follow you, Sam. I'm pumped that you're – I mean, I knew you'd be the man, but it seems like you're really getting into that space now. And you're in seventh grade or eighth grade? Seventh grade. Dude, are you four, how old are you? 13, 14? I'm 14. So we got um like the whole there you go. right here all got held back this year. Um You guys are gonna be killing it, dude. My God. It's gonna be a lot of fun. You, it's by the time you're seniors, you're gonna be wrecking kids. Well, the goal for us has always been when we're when we're in middle school to be able to wrestle high school guys, when we're in high school be able to wrestle college guys and so on and so forth. So um, let me ask you this. I'm not gonna hold you to it, Sam. All right. You got any thoughts on where you want to go to school at yet? D1 schools. D1 schools. Or you keep Man, it tight to it, the vest. So it's, it's um, I mean, obviously I've got plenty of time. So uh, six years before I, I make that decision finally. Um, but, you know, through HMA, I've been able to get to know some of these coaches really, really well. And I think, you know, kids talk about when they're, when they're young, they're like, man, when I get older, I can't, I'm going to wrestle in Iowa and I'm going to be a, I'm going to be an Iowa star in Carver Hawkeye arena, you know, and they, and some kids talk about, I'm going to go to Penn state. I'm going to go to Oklahoma state. I'm going to go to Cornell. But for me, I've gotten this opportunity and that kind of seems like a dream for them to wrestle for, for Tom brands. But for me, I've gotten to have conversations with these guys, get to know them. And it seems so much realer. Um, There's not a school in the country that I couldn't see myself at right now. Um, Which is, which is crazy to think about. Um, th- I mean, hopefully my options are open. I got to get, make sure my academics are on point. My wrestling is on point so that when I get to that level, um, that choice can be all mine and not have to be, um, 
you know, that I can't get into a school because my right. academics aren't there. So um, my plan is my plan is to be able to have my options wide open, options wide open. Um, right now we've had two guys commit to from our from our club from Ranger Pride, commit to Russell College. Eric Gibson's going to Cornell, and Ryan White's going to Lock Haven. So they're they're paving the way right now. Um, but right now my options are are just really open. Love it, dude. Uh, I love. I knew. You, I knew that's how you were gonna answer. I was just seeing if things had changed, man. I'm I'm excited to watch and. Like I said, dude, if I do make it out to Pennsylvania, I'm trying to get on the road now more than I'm now that I'm done with this project. Hasselrig, so. Hasselrig would be a good combination with this. We're right in the same area. Seriously, dude. God, that would be an, that'd be a fun one to tell that story. Yeah. A lot of guys you could a lot of guys you could focus on there. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm five minutes from UPJ right now. Is I, that right? I, that's that's right where I am, right where Hasselrig was. Wow. And that's where that's where Strip Matter got his start, right? Mm-hmm. I mean I grew up I mean, I, I where they grew up is about 15 minutes from from my house. Okay. So I okay. I saw Jody Saturday. Uh, I was at his house and we had a workout in Saturday morning, and uh, I'm I'm gonna see him again tonight. So we're all the right kid there. Can't get enough. You're working yeah. out like a madman right now. I, I'm young, healthy, love it. There's no reason not to love it. Love it, man. Well, best of luck to you. I love keeping in touch, man. Thank you for having me on the show and thank you for giving the, the Smiths a listen, my brother. I appreciate yes, sir. it. I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I'm um, glad that we can help each other and uh, I know I'm learning a lot from you. So I, I appreciate the time. Thanks, brother. We'll talk soon. All righty.